This time of year, the spice flavor of scorn is everywhere to be found. Yep, this episode is about the pumpkin part of that. Pumpkins are native to the Americas, but are grown on all six continents excepting Antarctica. Join me today for a bit of food history and interesting facts and a recipe or two with pumpkin. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 111. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. My cookbook. Cooking for Comfort is out and is full of soups and fall dishes to give your tummy a smile. You can purchase it on Amazon or visit culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort to download the introduction PDF and see readers submitted photos of the dishes they've made. Solve the problem of wondering what wines to buy at the grocery store. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash wine club to subscribe to California Wine Club, the Internet's premier wine club. Shop California, American, and international wines or buy a gift certificate. culinarylibertarian.com slash wine club. It's a solo episode today. Pumpkins is a fall thing. And of course, a Halloween thing, but also a food thing. So I want to have some fun and get some history and uh, a little bit of uh, lore, perhaps mythological lore. That's really big, isn't it? And recipes for one or two of my favorites, the pumpkin. Pumpkin pie is probably the first thing anyone identifies as a pumpkin dessert. Of course, this time of year, there is pumpkin spice everything, everywhere, and pumpkin spice donuts are worth the calories, but that's more of a spice episode, not a squash or a gourd episode. Let's tackle the name first. The name starts with the Greek word for round, Pepon, and I apologize if my pronunciation is wrong. It was the French and their Maurice Chevalier who gave it the nasally pompon. Shakespeare, in The Merry Wives of Windsor, used the word pompion, and the colonists turned that into pumpkin. Despite the worldly wordsmithery, the pumpkin is a native to Mexico. As published on the PBS.org page, pumpkins are thought to have originated in Central America around 7,500 years ago. As with corn, what we see is not what was. Corn today, both sweet and field, does not resemble their ancestors. Neither do the pumpkins. Those early pumpkins were small and hard and bitter. Jack-o'-lantern carvers would often save the seeds for a crunchy snack. That's a modern idea. Those Central American ancient pumpkins 
were grown for their flesh. From that same PBS.org page, quote, Thanks to their solid flesh, pumpkins proved ideal for storing during cold weather and in times of scarcity, end quote. I'll put a link to this PBS article on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 111. There is some interesting history about the pumpkin you might enjoy, including what may have been the first pumpkin pie. Today, pumpkin and pumpkin spice, yeah, I know, twice I've said that, have almost permeated popular food culture, but pumpkins feature in other aspects of popular culture, too. There are some movies, including the very forgettable Pumpkinhead, to The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the movie, and the animated movie from my childhood, as well, of course, as the book. My young daughter watched uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow recently and found it not at all scary. She's also the child who will binge Stranger Things, so scary is a high bar. Perhaps the most famous cartoon show version of the pumpkin is Charles Schultz's It's the Great Pumpkin, Child Brown. I don't know if content exists, it must, about the bigger messaging in Charlie Brown specials, but the level of faith Linus shows is admirable. So far, the pumpkin I've been talking about is the not-sweet pumpkin. You see it in the stores and at pumpkin patches in a variety of shapes and sizes and colors and textures. Technically, they are all edible, but the line between edible and palatable is fickle. The pumpkin we bake, cool, scoop, puree, and then make into pies and soup and ravioli and muffins and bread and cookies and ice cream and milkshakes and cheesecakes and hummus, is the sugar pumpkin. I suppose you could even make the infamous pumpkin juice of Harry Potter fame. Honestly, it never occurred to me it was anything other than just straight pumpkin juice. I searched for pumpkin juice After boasting on some Facebook page that I love all things pumpkins except Harry Potter pumpkin juice. I was pressed on that point, so I went to look it up. Alas, it is a sugary sweet concoction that I probably would not prefer, but you could make it if you were so inclined. You'll have to go find your own link. No doubt there are scores more cultural references and uses for pumpkins, but the most famous, probably, is the jack-o'-lantern. This has a fun story, and I'll tell it right after this break from a word from my affiliate. Folks, in your kitchen and for your cooking, it might be time for a fat-itude adjustment. Get fat. Get real fat. I mean Get the good stuff. Go to my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash get fat. Fatworks works with many small family farms. Local and small farms is one of the themes for this show, and Fatworks is helping support that ancestral idea. Fatworks crafts the finest premium traditional fats, tallow, 
lard, and duck fat for paleo or primal and keto eaters and people who know the truth about saturated fats. Lard makes the best pie dough. It just does. Check the Fatworks recipe page for dozens of recipes using Fatworks fat. Every course is represented, from appetizers of onion rings or french fries to soups or salads and duck fat caramels with sea salt. Each recipe indicates which diet it meets, such as gluten-free or paleo, Whole30 or keto. Get fat and get rid of those so-called vegetable oils. Get fat with my link, culinarylibertarian.com slash get fat. This year, make duck or pork belly confit, tallow fried french fries, and try a donut fried in lard. Surf over to culinarylibertarian.com slash get fat to eat better food. Now let's get back into the show. The jack-o'-lantern may be the most famous symbol of Halloween. Behind getting candy, carving a jack-o'-lantern might be the second most popular activity for Halloween. History.org has published a blog post about the jack-o'-lantern. I'll add that link also to the show notes page, but I want to read these few paragraphs. Quote, The Legend of Stingy Jack People have been making jack-o'-lanterns at Halloween for centuries. The practice originated from an Irish myth about a man nicknamed Stingy Jack. According to the story, Stingy Jack invited the devil to have a drink with him. True to his name, Stingy Jack did not want to pay for his drink, so he convinced the devil to turn himself into a coin that Jack could use to buy the drinks. Once the devil did so, Jack decided to keep the money and put it into his pocket next to silver coins, which prevented the devil from changing back into his original form. Jack eventually freed the devil under the condition that he would not bother Jack for one year and that, should Jack die, he would not claim his soul. The next year, Jack again tricked the devil into climbing into a tree to pick a piece of fruit. While he was up in the tree, Jack carved a sign of the cross into the tree's bark so that the devil could not come down until the devil promised Jack not to bother him for ten more years. Soon after, Jack died. As the legend goes, God would not allow such an unsavory figure into heaven. The devil, upset by the trick Jack had played on him and keeping his word not to claim his soul, would not allow Jack into hell. He sent Jack off into the dark night with only a burning coal to light his way. Jack put the coal into a carved-out turnip and has been roaming the earth with it ever since. The Irish began to refer to this ghostly figure as Jack of the Lantern, and then simply, Jack-o'-Lantern, end quote. One last point, and I mentioned it earlier, is the most famous Jack-o'-Lantern may be the one, maybe the one the Headless Horseman carries in 
The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, a short story by Washington Irving. If you live in a place where you can grow a pumpkin plant, they spread out a lot. Sow the seeds between the last week of May to the second week of June. The largest pumpkin known was grown in Belgium in 2016 and weighed in at 2,624 pounds. The largest U.S. pumpkin was grown in New Hampshire in 2018 and weighed 2,528 pounds. Pumpkin varieties produce different results. If you watch some of those Food Network pumpkin carving competitions, some of those things are huge. Okay, now it's time to get into some recipes. But before I do, here's Jake with a word about his wine podcast, Tasting Anarchy. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. When making anything pumpkin, the choice is canned or puree your own? The answer isn't as plain as it might appear. Of course, fresh, baked, and pureed is best, but best is subjective and there's an issue. Canned pumpkin is consistent. That means from can to can, you get the same thing. It is dependable. Fresh pumpkins are not so predictable and you can't really tell by looking. The significant issue is water content. There is no way to know by looking how much water is in the pumpkin. If your pumpkin is too watery, and I've had this happen, that excess water can really fiddle with the ratios in baking. Watery pumpkin can be used for soup, or ravioli filling, or for pumpkin hummus. For consistency and dependability, in your baking, cheesecakes, cookies, there is pie, there's no shame in using canned pumpkin. In no particular order of yummy, let's start with the pumpkin cheesecake. I know you know someone who demands cheesecakes are too heavy, too rich, too sweet, too something. You might be that person. Every person who has told me one of those exceptions to tasting a cheesecake has changed that decision after eating my version of pumpkin cheesecake. So, I have a blog post with a video embedded on how to make this cheesecake. I'll post a link to that on the show notes page, but a point I will make, and one that seems to be of great concern to cheesecake bakers, is the cracking on top. That's caused by overbaking. The real challenge is how do you tell when a cheesecake is done? Well, cheesecake ain't cake. Cheesecake is a custard. Eggs, cream, in the form of cream cheese and actually a bit of cream, makes a custard. While still warm, a custard, cheesecake or creme brulee, 
will appear a bit jiggly. When that custard is cooled overnight and allowed to rest and set, then we will see what we expect, a firm custard. Follow the recipe on the blog. Low temperature and a long time, low and slow, is best for a custard of any size. And if somehow it does crack, I have a fix. I put a thin layer of sour cream, which has been mixed with a bit of powdered sugar. Yes, that does increase the sweet, but it also stabilizes the sour cream so it is firm when it is fully cold. That topping is pretty. It's not very thick. It's a couple of millimeters thick. And it covers the crack so that the top of your cheesecake is beautiful and smooth. And when you cut into it, nobody knows. And shh, that's our secret. You, me, a cut a chunk. Nobody needs to know. All those details are on the blog page, which will, as I said, be linked on the show notes page. One of my favorite pasta dishes is a pumpkin ravioli. Pumpkin and sage and walnut and brown butter is a great flavor combination. It's a bit cliche as flavors go because it's done a lot, but it's done a lot because it tastes good. It's one of those classic combinations. Ravioli can be tricky business. It's not hard exactly, but it can be tricky if you haven't made them before. It can be tricky because the pasta will, well, it will. It will dry out. And if it dries out too much, which isn't really very much at all, it can crack. And then your ravioli won't seal and it won't hold the filling inside. And so it can be really frustrating to go through all the work of making ravioli and only to have them color the water orange. All that aside, there's no reason not to try. There is another way to get close to raviolis without rolling the pasta and making the raviolis, which I'll go into in a moment. If you are making the raviolis, then you probably have a pasta machine and a pasta recipe you prefer. Since ravioli is doubled up pasta, and pasta which is too thick on the edges, but not in the middle, will not cook well, roll the dough a bit thinner than you would for, say, just regular noodles. Not all machines are the same, but on mine, rolling down to number two for raviolis works. Roll the dough as wide as the machine goes, which if you've rolled pasta dough, will be very easy because it does it all, it just does that. It just goes as wide as it can. You'll need a piece of pasta for the bottom and one and a piece of pasta for the top. It's a wee bit longer, but this isn't easy. This isn't really a problem. The filling which I'll go into next, is less quantity than you might think per ravioli. Too much filling in ravioli can prevent a complete seal of the dough, and now we're back to unhappy pasta and orange-colored water and no filling in raviolis. I use about a teaspoon of filling, maybe a teaspoon and a half. Give yourself about a half an inch from the edge and place two portions on the same row. So imagine you have uh, this sheet of pasta, or if you've never seen a sheet of pasta, say, imagine your winter scarf you put around your neck. It's so maybe six inches wide. So um, visualize uh, two, uh, two, two mounds of filling in the same, same, same row, but each one 
indent at about half an inch from the edge of the pasta or the scarf, but of course, we're not eating the scarf. You want that much room on the, around the filling to give you a sufficient amount of pasta to glue this together. The glue is going to be, you egg wash the pasta. Uh, you get one shot at this, so place the top sheet of pasta on top of the bottom sheet of pasta, and then starting in the center, just touch to seal, then touch around. You're going to, you're going to end up working your way around the, the filling by pushing the air out of it. I'm actually going to include a video that gives you some ideas about how to do this. It's not me, but it's, it's, it's a good video to learn kind of how to do this because watching is sometimes better than hearing. <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to talk procedures of a thing that's better to watch. Uh, the video is from a Belgian restaurant. The relevant portion to filling and sealing starts at about seven minutes. She's making a lobster ravioli, uh, but does roll the pasta as I've described. One thing I do that she didn't is I use an egg wash for the bottom layer to help ensure a good seal. I do as she does. I press out all the air. I don't use um, the cutter edges, the, the backs of the cutters like she does, but that's, from a restaurant standpoint, that makes pretty and uniform. At home, you can do that, but I don't. Uh, the difference for procedures don't really matter as long as the end result is a ravioli that doesn't leak out the filling. I also prefer a bit more of a ravioli edge than she makes, but that's just a preference. One more note about procedures. She uses a pastry bag to place the filling. That's really a good idea. But pumpkin or butternut squash filling tends to be a bit too runny for a pastry bag. That's why for squash raviolis, I use uh, a tablespoon or a teaspoon or some kind of a some, some spoon, small spoon. Uh, a pastry bag would be great for various herbs, cheese fillings, or making her lobster ravioli filling, or something that's got enough of its own strength to hold its shape once it comes out of the bag, or actually while it's in the bag, so it doesn't you know run all over the floor. These raviolis are, in my opinion, best served with brown butter, chopped walnuts, and sage. You could do a cream sauce. You could do an herb cream sauce. You could do a, well, you know, it would be nice, a nice turkey broth. That would be really good. There are at least two ways to get the brown butter sage walnut thing done. Brown the butter in a pan. Add the walnuts just before the butter has reached the ideal preferred brown stage. Then add the chopped sage at the very last second. Spoon all of that on top of the cooked plated ravioli. The other way is to place the sage and chopped walnuts on top of the cooked plated ravioli and spoon the brown butter on top of everything. The hot butter will fry the sage and it's the exact same way that a trout miniere is done. Traditionally, that was done table side and the waiter or the maitre d' Would, would have the, the fishes on the plate, the capers and the lemon juice and the parsley is on the fish. Then the brown butter goes on the fish and all that snapping, popping thing happens, but that opens up the flavors. So that sort of quick frying of the sage on top 
well, either case, on top of the ravioli opens up that sage flavor. Uh, the key difference between spooning butter on top of the sage and the walnuts or putting the sage and walnuts into the butter is how much flavor you get per bite. If you put the walnuts and the sage in the butter and then put that on the ravioli, every bite of ravioli with brown butter is the same level of walnut and sage, which is fine. If you do it the other way around, put the butter on top of the sage and the walnut, then you get different experiences because that the flavors didn't all go the same place. So one bite might be very sagey, one bite might be very... Now, here's the thing. Brown butter tastes like hazelnuts. They call it brunoisette, which is the French word for hazelnut. And so you get that hazelnut flavor, which is quite delicious, or you get that walnut flavor, or you get more. So it's it, it depends on what you, the eater, or the hostess one or host wants to give your guests but it, it, there's not, nothing wrong it's just one one tends to be a little bit easier than the other but that's a matter of degrees if raviolis isn't something you can or want to make a pasta dish with the components pumpkin and pasta can be made inside out what that means is you make a pumpkin cream sauce and add the pasta you prefer to that now, pumpkin plays well with walnuts and sage, as I've mentioned. Less obvious, perhaps, are caramelized onions, caramelized apples, eggplant, uh, parsnips are all really good flavors with pumpkin. Depending on what you want as an eating experience, smooth pureed cream sauce or pieces of vegetables dictates what you do with your sauce. For a pasta sauce, I prefer the rustic chunks of veg in the sauce, each bite with a different flavor. So this is like the brown butter on top of the walnuts and the sage thing. So if you have chunks of stuff in your pumpkin sauce, you get a bite of pumpkin sauce and pasta and parsnip. And then you get a piece of apple or a piece of caramelized onion. So every bite is a little bit different than the last one. I like that part. If you want more, well, a refined look or more homogeneity, I think, uh, then puree the sauce, and then you then you get the one that does it looks nicer. That's true, but I like the country rustic. So we've covered dessert first, cheesecake, then the main course, pasta. We need an appetizer, pumpkin soup. Some of the same flavors in that pasta dish will come into play for our soup. In this case, pureed is the way to go. For our soups, by the way, you could do a chunky pumpkin soup, and that would be absolutely fine. For our soup, we want to build flavor from our other ingredients. So I would use parsnips and carrots and onions. I would also use fennel as the vegetable base. And let, them and let them develop a good caramel color before I add the next ingredient. Uh, what the heck did I just say? So we're going to use our soup pot, something big enough to hold all the stuff. And over medium heat, and that doesn't mean anything because what's medium heat at your house. But what we want to do is um, somewhere between four and six, if you have a range like that, uh, I would use butter because the flavor of brown butter tastes good. 
uh, caramelize, uh, cook these things in the pan until you see coloring developing on the vegetables and some of the coloring remaining on the bottom of the pan. We want that to happen. That's the French word for that is fond, F-O-N-D, like a foundation. It's a foundation for a flavor. We want that stuff down there. When it burns, then it's a foundation for garbage, so don't let it burn. And as the parsnips and carrots will be the things that caramelize the slowest, because they have the cellulose content is, it takes longer for the cellulose to break down and the sugar to become available, whereas with an onion, that caramelizes quickly. But once we get a little bit of color on this, then we're going to, no, we have to act. We have to do something because that heat's not going to go away and we need to do something. Do something means add something to the pan to take the heat away. In this case, before, well, I'm jumping ahead of myself. We have a few seconds to work while that color of brown exists before it turns to burn. And at that high heat, this is when we want to add things like fresh herbs. So here's where our sage would go in. Sage is one of those kinds of flavors that grows as it sits. So the sage today will be strong, will be less than the sage tomorrow. It just does that. Vanilla is the same way. It just grows. So don't use too much. <laughs> it's going to get bigger. Uh, I would add a few grinds of nutmeg and I would add some fresh ginger. You can use dry ginger, but Recall that when we use dried spices, we're going to put them into a little cup of a kind to add a little bit of water to make a paste. If we add that dried ginger or whatever our dried spice is into that really hot pan, really all that happens is that it burns. When we add water to a dried spice to make a paste out of that, now we have a little bit of time on the clock to get the flavor extracted before something bad happens and bad in this case would be burned. So the water from uh, in the paste forms a steam. The steam activates the flavors in that dry pasta and that dry pasta in the dry spice. And now you can you can like, wow, I can smell the ginger. This is amazing. Now that high heat, the sage, the nutmeg, the ginger, which has been added to water or fresh ginger, which can burn. Something else needs to happen now. What do we do? This is where we add our water. Now, we have all this pumpkin puree. Why aren't we adding that? Well, you can add that, but we want to do something. In either case, the canned or the homemade pureed pumpkin puree has a lot of other stuff than just water. And what I want to have happen is I want to have that fond release. I want to take the heat out. And by adding just straight water, we're going, to re we're going to take the temperature out of the pan, which is what we needed to do. Uh, we run the risk of the pumpkin burning because it doesn't release the water fast enough. And the sugar's caramelized before water comes out. So a quarter of a cup of water, it'll go and make a giant scene, lots of steam. That's okay. Don't put your face over it. But we want that to happen. That's expected and as it happens, necessary. Once that water hits the pan and you see that initial burst of steam, the sound will go from a very high pitch to a lower pitch. That's your audio indication that the pan is losing temperature. Now add your pumpkin puree.
it might need a little bit more water or it could have veggie stock or it could have chicken stock or veal stock or turkey stock, uh, anything that you want, depending on your dietary preferences and, and what you've got. But it's going to need some more water because as it starts to cook, the the components, the cellulose in and starch in the pumpkin is going to thicken. So we're just going to fix that problem by adding water to it. Just to recap, we've added the water. Now it's the pan's cooling. It's still hot. Don't touch it. Uh, the pumpkin goes in. Uh, the water or the veggie stock, or if you're meatitarian, the, the meat stock. Stirring. Don't splash yourself. Stir slow. This isn't an urgent thing. The urgency has been fixed. We added water. Urgency is gone. But now we need to finish our soup. Stir to not splash you because pumpkin stains don't come out uh, and burns hurt. Adding, adding the stock or adding the water is adding time, not the herb, but the, the moments on the clock. And what we're, when we add actually water, when we add moments on the clock, what we're adding is time for cooking. Uh, sometimes we want the cooking time to extend to really blend all the flavors together. Uh, in the case of this soup, we want the cooking time to extend because we want to make sure the parsnip and the carrot bits get fully cooked. Uh, especially if we're going to make a puree soup, un uncooked parsnips, they don't puree. I mean, they might, but they don't taste good. So fully cooked veg by longer cooking time. And when water evaporates out, it's like we put nothing in. For pureeing the soup, well, there's two main ways to do this. A blender is a good way to puree soup. And there's at least two things to consider. Hot liquid in a blender can be dangerous. More than a few kid movies have a blender scene where things go all over the place. When the stuff flying out happens to be boiling hot, it's not good. When the other item in the blender is that the velocity of the blending can make the soup thicker, which we can fix by adding more water or adding extra cream if you're creaming the soup. This isn't, a, this isn't an uncorrectable problem, but it does change what we're working with. The other method for pureeing is a food mill. Uh, the remains, so it's still a hot soup, and you're ladling into the mill and you're turning the crank of the food mill, but you're not really activating any of the cellulose and starch, and you're not making this fundamentally thicker by what a blender would do. The food mill is going to be a little bit, as purees go, more rustic than the blender puree. It's going to, it's going to, the blender puree is going to be very refined, very smooth, very elegant. It's a preference on both what you want and what you have. Once the soup is pureed, replace it into the pot, put it back on the stove, and add some heavy cream. You might need to add some more water. Adjust the consistency as you prefer. Check the seasoning. And it's appetizer, or dinner, or lunch for tomorrow. So, soups generally like a garnish. Sometimes people put a whole, you know, <laughs> a piece of foliage on there. Here's a, here's a rosemary bush. Well, I'm not a fan of that. But nice, slightly over-toasted croutons, so they're starting to get a little, not burnt, 
But you know how sometimes over toasty toast has kind of a bitterness to it? Well, we're going to count on that bitterness to be a flavor foil because it's alkaline to work against the richness of our soup. So rich and alkaline don't really go together as far as balancing, but there's a, there's a combination here. This isn't a science thing as much as it is. Well, maybe it is, but there's just a, there's a harmony created by the rich, creamy, and the slightly bitter that makes yum and is worth doing. Now, if you have really superior rye bread where you live, where you make really superior rye bread, a toasted, slightly extra toasted rye crouton on that pumpkin soup, <laughs> well, give me a call. Uh, a little bit of a garnish of brown butter is nice. If you've got walnut oil drizzled a little teeny bit on top, that's also nice. Now that's a good soup. I started this food portion with baking, and I'm going to end this food portion with baking. Pumpkin muffins are yum. As it happens, the banana muffin recipe, which I'll link to on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 111, is an easy muffin recipe. Change out the banana puree for pumpkin, and you are good to go. There is another pumpkin muffin recipe that I think is quite dandy. The method is the same. Yes, there is a muffin method, but the process is different. This uses cream cheese instead of melted butter. To get that recipe, you'll need to join my email list. Surf over to culinarylibertarian.com slash muffinsbook to sign up and download the muffin ebook. Uh, that ebook has several muffin recipes, and mostly it's designed, it's got a few unique ones, but then the pumpkin, this one is unique, I think. I haven't seen another one like it. But really to teach you how to expand into other kinds of muffins, because some basic recipes are easy to do that with. So the instructions on how to make more kinds, and at least this bonus uh, muffin recipe, are in that ebook you can download. So that is our almost Halloween pumpkin episode, and also good, by the way, for Thanksgiving, for the, the pumpkin cheesecake. Very, very good. So happy baking and souping. All right, folks, that's going to do it. The ravioli video will be on the show notes page, as well as the PBS article and the pumpkin cheesecake recipe. For some ideas of what to do with your pumpkin, pumpkin ice cream or pumpkin butterscotch fudge or pumpkin turkey chili, check out Savory Spices Pumpkin Recipe page at culinarylibertarian.com slash savorypumpkin. Please share this episode on your social media feeds and like the post. Also, rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Music 
For the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.